I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. Let me borrow your imagination for just a moment uh, to introduce honoring the ancestors Sashin. This is talk three, 2021. Imagine you are walking on a mountain trail can hear the rain. And as you continue down the trail, at some point you reach a crossroads. A crossroads with an old fallen weathered sign. And those of you who have walked many trails know that often these aged signs, it's no longer clear which sign refers to which trail. And you stand and wonder for a moment. As you want to go the right way. And as if, as if in a dream, you suddenly realize you don't actually remember where it was you were going and don't really remember where it was that you came from. You stand there with uncertainty, glancing left, glancing right, not really knowing what you're looking for. It's just when you don't know what to do, you look around. Things are hazy, unclear. You look over to the right and suddenly start to notice things that look familiar. As if in a dream, images begin to appear. You see things familiar things, fantasy images, fantasies of accomplishments that you always wished you could accomplish, the fruition of secret goals only you knew you had. Visions of being recognized for what you most want to be recognized for, recognized by whom you most want to recognize you for it. Happy memories appear of shared experiences with loved ones, deep experiences of connection both with others and with self or memories of connection with the natural world, memories of times when you really felt like you just got it right. 
you worked hard for something and you really got what you wanted. It's all so familiar. It touches you, it's beautiful. But it also seems, as you look over in this direction, rather distant. You could gaze in this direction for an eternity, it seems, but something turns you to look the other way. And as you turn to the left, it almost breaks the heart to break connection with this beautiful sight that has captivated you maybe for longer than you realize. But in your curiosity, you have to look at this other direction also. And still you worry that just by looking this new way, the former sight might just vanish by your turning away from it. Looking left at this crossroads, the path is unclear. It's not even certain if there is one, or perhaps there appears to be a path, but in just a few feet, it bends out of view. Looking in this direction, you feel a cool breeze coming from a mysterious, unseen place. It brings a sense of life to your skin, and as you breathe, this new air arouses a subtle vitality within. Naturally, you take a step forward towards this newness, but what about the heart clenches and remembers the other way? Looking down on the ground lies that crossroads sign that you had seen. And just as in a dream, it appears clearer now. And as if in a dream, you realize that you're not at a crossroads at all. You simply have the choice to continue forward or to go back the way you came. And the words on the sign are obvious now. One way reads known, the other reads unknown. Glancing back, looking back from whence you came, all the same sights remain, though perhaps a little more distant now. But your curiosity is strong, so you turn away and you continue down the new path. Dropping this image for now and pick it up in a bit. In Sashin, we emphasize the here and now.
And this session, honoring the ancestors session, we look directly at the place the ancestors exist, which is our own minds. As we look deeper and clearer into our own minds, like uncovering a time capsule, we see that our own minds are the very place caretaken by the ancestors, that our own mind is the very mind opened by Shakyamuni Buddha and dusted by generations of excellent housekeepers. That the Buddha mind itself was not something passed down. Rather, its lineage of caretakers, one by one, stepped in, clarified, cleaned, organized, and perhaps remodeled and decorated a little. And now we find ourselves the caretaker, endowed with thousands of years of evolution in human view and blessed by thousands of years of ancestors keeping this way open on our behalf. Some, if not all, of these ancestors had very powerful vows. Now I'll tell a story. First about the ancestor Soen Shaku, whom Kenyo referenced at a recent class at Great Vow. This is a letter that he would write to a student of his in California with whom he would stay for about a year in California. So in Shaku wrote to Mrs. Russell, the fifth patriarch told a new monk, Southern monkeys have no Buddha nature. But that monk proved he had Buddha nature by becoming the sixth patriarch. In any part of the globe where there is air, a fire can burn. Someday my teaching will surely go to the West, led by you. A few years prior, Soen Shaku was a Buddhist representative at the World Parliament of Religions. The parliament was many things. It does appear to have been primarily an opportunity for members of the Christian tradition to represent, and uh, quoting from the closing uh, statement of the conference, to represent that there is no teacher to be compared with Christ and no savior accepting Christ. But it was also an opportunity for many in the West to witness Buddhism being represented by practicing Buddhists, in large part for the first time. 
And this was also true for Hindus, Parsis, Sikhs, and Jains. Soen Shaku was one of six delegates sent from Japan for the parliament. At the time, he would have been 33 years old, abbot of the Rinzai Temple and Gakuji in Japan. He would have had at least two decades of monastic and academic experience, and also, interestingly, three years of life as a wandering Theravadan monk in what is now Sri Lanka. He would, in confidence, later tell a disciple of his that he did this because he wanted to know the importance of the Vinaya in the Buddha's way. He would become the first Zen teacher to function as such in the United States and was teacher to the scholar and practitioner D.T. Suzuki, who would become the expert on Mahayana Buddhism in decades to come in the West, and also teacher to Nyogen Senzake and Sokeon, who would found the first Zen sitting groups in the United States on opposite coasts in the early 20th century. Judging from what is written, in the official history of the parliament, Soenshaku was by no means one of the more charismatic figures present at the parliament. His speeches addressed impermanence and the natural order of things. He neither dis discussed satori nor koans. and may have avoided making interesting points altogether, but was very straightforward and empty of anything that anyone might want to argue against. The simple and obvious is the gateway to the truth. And this is the principle upon which the practice of meditation is founded. So in Shaku's first talk, the law of cause and effect is taught by the Buddha, stated that whom we recognize as the Buddha was not the creator of the law of cause and effect, but rather someone who became attuned to it, someone who became awake to the natural order of things, who simply gained the ability to live in the presence of the way things are. Which is a very safe and agreeable statement. When someone makes an interesting point, listeners agree and listeners disagree. When someone says something that is plain, simple, and obvious, like pain becomes pleasure, becomes pain, cold becomes hot, becomes cold, day turns to night, turns to day, the listener says, I'm with you. What next? So what next? We can debate until the end of time about many things, about the importance of satori versus personal work, 
the effectiveness of koans. More practically still, what time we should ring the wake-up bell in the morning, what the right diet is, whether we should have plastic or wooden toothbrushes, what practices lead to awakening, personal awakening versus collective awakening, etc. And hopefully, through all of these discussions, we really learn something. And there's no, there's no but at the end of that. Hopefully we do. So Nshaku came from Japan to stay with the Russells, a wealthy and well-cultured couple on the California coast. He would teach Zazen and do koan study with them. And he also would occasionally teach their seven adopted children he would also travel and lecture. He wrote several poems inspired by the landscape of the United States as he traveled across by train. No dust clings to the peaks of the Rocky Mountains. Heaven and earth are all white. I watch additional snow falling from my seat in the train. I feel like I am facing the sublime itself. One of the questions that a student asks internally is when a master looks at the mountains, do they see the same mountain that I do? We know the story of Master Yunmen responding, what is the Buddha dried shit on a stick? Does he, see, does he see shit the same way I see shit? Back to the poem. Heaven and earth are all white. No dust clings to the peaks of the, of the Rocky Mountains. Can you see the mountains all covered in snow? occasional pepperings of rock, apparent only in the steepest parts. Maybe the occasional crack where a crevasse has opened up or a line across where an avalanche has fallen. Can you hear the softness, the softness of snow dampening sound? Does it have a smell? Does it smell cold, pure? This last winter, I had the first opportunity to ski in about a decade. And one afternoon when I was feeling more courageous, I hiked up into a popular peak. And on the way, 
I was passing the patrol tower and the man came out and said that if I was going to hike up, I had to go all the way up. I couldn't cut over early, which made me very nervous. But not having enough humility to just turn around right there, I kept going to the top. It was extremely windy and I was thinking about feel silly saying this, but how much older my body is than it used to be. <laughs> and at the top, the usual crowd was gathered, waiting as individuals went down one by one. And people would watch each person. I felt self-conscious. And But I started going down, and, and the snow was just right. And when it's so, when the snow is so deep, and it's so steep that you can build up enough speed, and you can sink with each turn, and the snow brushes up against the chest and flies into the face and makes this incredible sound with each turn. There's an amazing rhythm to it. And when you hike and then ride down, it's an experience that you can't have taking a chairlift. There are some things that you really have to work for. So in Shaku's next poem, farther east across the country, my mind runs smoothly like the Mississippi River where I am now. Morning sun reflects a pink color upon the snow. Probably the snow is fragrant like the flowers. Lovely sensitivity, looking out the window of the train, imagining the smells on the other side. I remember sitting by a brook last summer on Mount Hood. It was a rushing brook, so beautiful, so alive. The, uh, the water was racing downhill like a thousand slalom skiers. And a piece of my self-hatred fell into the water. It was that simple. There's no way to frame what leads up to an experience. All we can do is keep practicing. As he apparently arrived in New York, high buildings stand like a mirage. A heavenly bridge passes over the dragon waters. It's greater than a rainbow. The spring breeze has no concern with the noises of human beings. I stand alone with the Statue of Liberty. 
How many cities could you recognize just by their silhouette? They each have their own personality from a distance. Just like, just like an individual person. What do we recognize as alive or dead? Imagining so and Chaku traveling across this new country for him by train. When you travel across by train, it becomes apparent that it's not the case that San Francisco is over here and New York is over here, but it's one land. And the train makes this obvious. And of course, it's crystal clear if you walk. Relevant to our lineage, Soen Shaku's Dharma grandfather, Gisan Zenrai Zenji, who's in our uh, Tendai Denpo lineage, was the teacher of Tekesui Giboku Zenji, also in that lineage. And it's their exchange uh, over a wasted drop of water that led to the name for the one-drop community in, at Sogenji in Okayama, Japan. And that was the temple that Gisan Zen, Zenrai Zenji uh, taught at. So generation after generation of master and disciple, weaving in and out of each other's lives, each instructing the other in what they hold most dear. Our ancestors are those who shape us, and our views and our actions, in turn, shape the ancestors. Thus, ancestry is a two-way street. And our ancestors, of course, were not just disciples of Zen, but disciples of the world in which they lived. For every aspect of that world shaped them. So too with us, disciples of the earth, shaped, educated, crafted by every aspect of our time. We are born from our ancestors, but the stories that we become, our stories are birthed and raised by our descendants. There's an expression that human beings hate to suffer, but love its causes. Maybe this is from Ajahn Amaro, I'm not sure. Human beings hate to suffer, but love its causes. And it may be equally true that human beings love awakening, love freedom, but hate its causes. Love learning, 
But in all honesty, love having learned. We started with this image of the crossroads where we found ourselves all of a sudden aware of where we came from, not knowing what is next, and not wanting to go back the way we came. And this is the crossroads that a basic meditation can lead us to. When we have resistance to meditation, we have resistance until we see that there is resistance and there is meditation, whereupon we have the ability to choose meditation and resistance can fall away. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Learning more each time according to Dogen's spiral of living. We bring the whole of ourselves to Seshin, including the parts that don't want to be here. Sometimes we doubt the point. Sometimes we think that this is unhealthy. Sometimes we think, I can't breathe right. As simple as that, I can't breathe right. And when we are thinking in such a way, we don't realize that we've stunk up the room with our own bad breath. We make an important and simple distinction in meditation instruction between our experience, like the breath, our experience and our thoughts and beliefs. And we say, in simple terms, that you are meditating if your attention is on the former and not on the latter. Attention is on the experience, not on the thoughts and beliefs. That's the qualifier for you are meditating. And we allow that if your attention is largely on the latter, in the thoughts and beliefs area, but occasionally and intentionally returns to the former, that'll do for now. And it can be this simple. And when it is this simple, it's very easy to recognize our doubting and aversive thoughts because they appear so distinct from the breath, so distinct from present moment awareness. But part of the reason we come to Sashin is that we need help teasing these things apart. Recently, Hogan Roshi emphasized that we really have to see, now quoting this famous Zen expression from the ninth century, the difference between Mountains are mountains, and mountains are mountains. 
The quote being, before I sought enlightenment, the mountains were mountains and the rivers were rivers. While I sought enlightenment, the mountains were not mountains and the rivers were not rivers. After I reached Satori, the mountains were mountains and the rivers were rivers. And we have to understand the difference between the first mountains are mountains and the final mountains are mountains. The essential piece in between being the stage where mountains are not mountains. This second stage, this emphasis on the second stage points out that what we see and what we think we see, I'm sorry, the difficulty in the second stage is that what we see and what we think we see are so intimately interwoven that we cannot tell them apart. We cannot discern our experience from our beliefs about it. This is what confusion is. And this is wholly forgivable because, in a way, our experience is only we our experience is only whatever we believe our experience to be. And of course, we experience our beliefs. So this confusion is straightforward in a way. How could this confusion not occur? But in order to actually focus on concentration, we really need to tease these things apart In order to do so, we have to actually practice doubt in our beliefs. To help us do so, we design a schedule that includes stillness and silence and propose a very simple instruction such as feel your body. Feel your body exactly as it is. And if you're like me in any way, no sooner do you hear, feel your body exactly as it is, then you become aware of exactly how you want your body to feel. And before session, we had more opportunity to adjust, to make it feel how we wanted it to feel, to move however, whenever, and to plan for accommodation later if it was unavailable now. In session, if you're uncomfortable, Guess that's just the way it's going to be for a while. And we're not so used to that. The mind is used to figuring out how to improve our circumstance. That's its job, trying to help. And if it's bad enough, it can come to conclusions like, this isn't for me, this isn't healthy, this practice is contrived. I'm more of a morning meditator anyways. All the while, as this goes, we stink up the room 
with our own breath. It takes time to tease apart our beliefs from our experience. And this is what we come to session to do. The distinction is not initially apparent. For example, the belief, this feels unhealthy. Belief or experience? Obviously, it's a belief, but it's a belief that we really feel. And if we really believe it, we can find any thought we want to to support it, to support the belief that this is unhealthy. The cold is causing me to tense my shoulders, which is minimizing my circulation in my body. Excessive holding of one's bladder has been shown to lead, has been, now take that one away. All of the studies show that sitting is the new smoking. This isn't healthy. We can come up with believable thoughts about our fixed belief. And we could argue them and they make sense. And we could find information online that supports them. You know, they're not wrong in and of themselves. But we come to session not to affirm a bunch of reasons why we're right. We come to challenge. We come because of that point at the crossroads and we know that We know where we've already been. And because we know where we've already been, we're willing to challenge our beliefs. And our beliefs are made apparent by our thoughts. And each thought points to the familiar territory from whence we came. And we can stay there as long as we like. But curiosity moves us forward. Continuing with the story. Nyogen Senzaki was one of Soenchaku's disciples. a poem by Nyogen Senzaki that he wrote on his way to an internment camp. All Japanese faces will leave California to support their government. This morning, the winding train, like a big black snake, takes us away as far as Wyoming. The current of Buddhist thought always runs eastward. India to China, China to Japan, Japan to California, California to Wyoming. Continuing east.
The current of Buddhist thought always runs eastward. This policy may support the tendency of the teaching, who knows? Aspects of Nyogen Senzaki's birth are unclear. One story reports that he was found as a boy in Siberia, huddled up against his mother's frozen body. As a young man, he had corresponded with Soenchaku Roshi, then abbot of Engakuji. Senzaki shared that although Soen Roshi was very clear about being available at all times to do sanzen, even to be aroused in bed in the middle of the night, that would have been about as wise as to wake a lion in her den. At Engakuji, Senzaki bunked with DT Suzuki, left after five years, and founded an alternative kindergarten he called Mentor Garden. This name is significant because he would use the same name to refer to his Zendo in California years later, the Meditator's Mentor Garden. Soen Roshi said of Senzaki's departure, he walked out of my monastery and now wanders around the world meeting young people, gradually associating with their families, and so tries in making religion, education, ethics, and charity as the steps to climb to the highest. Soen Roshi's teacher had... um, formed a Rinzai Lei practice community, which I understand was very radical at that time. When Soen Roshi followed his invitation from the Russells to California, Yogen Senzaki followed shortly after as his attendant, and the two would see each other for the last time after Senzaki was dismissed from the Russell's house. As they walked together in Golden Gate Park, Soen Roshi said, this may be better for you instead of being hampered as my attendant monk. Just face the great city and see whether it conquers you or you conquer it. He also encouraged Nyogen Senzaki to work for Americans and to not even utter the B of Buddhism for 17 years. 17 years later, Soen Shaku died. Nyogen Senzaki raised funds to begin what may have been the first Zendo in the United States. I read that his meditation periods were 15 minutes long. He would alternate days between Japanese and Westerners, give a Dharma talk, and then encourage people to leave without chatting. If they began to chat, they were encouraged to leave sooner. I believe that the meditator's mentor garden continued under under his guidance up until his death in 1958. He also had organized a sitting group in the internment camp in Wyoming while he was there. 
Working as an immigrant must have been extremely difficult. He was in, living in San Francisco. Apparently his entire correspondence with Soen Roshi, years and years of handwritten letters, was lost during the 1905 earthquake. And a powerful wave of racism forced all Japanese in the area to field work in the outskirts in 1908. And even by the 20s, when he invited his first Zen audience, about 20 years that he had been in California, his English was still so underdeveloped that he had to write every word on the blackboard. There's two things about this that make this significant. And one is us here now. Because of our practice, we can look back upon the significance of the actions of our predecessors, which led to our being here. In this way, it's our being here that gives significance to their being there. Second, Nyogen Senzaki was not founding Zen Buddhism in America. He was simply a person devoting himself to what he cared about. So many people devote their lives to what is dear to them. Maybe everyone does. And some of these things produce obvious fruit down the road and others do not. Either way, the pursuit of what one holds most dear is paramount. Whether or not something comes of it is a simple roll of the dice. So we find ourselves at this crossroads. And the simple question can appear, what is the way forward? Given that we all have the beliefs which obscure our relationship with ourselves, such as the belief, just using one for concreteness, this is unhealthy, allowing for some ambiguity, ambiguity about what the this even refers to, as is generally the case. Although some people are very wordy thinkers, others are not, and this belief, the evidence that this belief is present in the body could be as simple as sitting there feeling kind of icky and wanting this moment to pass. And when we're in that situation, that's when the crossroads appear. In this situation, We love to awaken, but fear its causes. 
the function of the meditation object is to disentangle ourselves with the rehearsed and the familiar. It doesn't matter if the meditation is profound, shallow, deep, productive, calming, aggravating. If the self is or is not present, maybe it's there a little bit in the background, I'm not quite sure. Because anything that we can frame is in the context of the familiar. We're understanding in terms of what we have already known. Our suffering is born from our framework of reality. Thus, if we wish not to suffer, the framework itself has to change. And what we think of as ourself is the foundation of that entire framework. One very rudimentary way of looking at meditation stages. First, meditation is calm. Then resistance comes up. Resistance passes and there's clarity. And then from that clarity, we're able to surrender that which might otherwise obscure that clarity. In traditional Buddhism, we say that clinging is the cause of suffering. And we say this too in Zen, but it often feels more like we say, you are the cause of suffering. You are the cause of suffering. And this is part of what's going on in this second step that I mentioned, resistance. Suffering is our creation. It seems that only with time and practice we see that the reason why we suffer is because we suffer. as an active verb. And if we put the time in with enough faith, with enough faith that there's a better way we can be, our created suffering reveals itself. And that's a very important aspect of clarity seeing our own created suffering. And when we see it, we can let it go. And when we let it go, we can go a new direction.
there's no way to know what is around that next corner. And further, it doesn't matter. We have to do exactly our best from exactly where we're standing. And this is true in the context of the evolving of our lives and also in the case of a meditation period on day two of Sashin. So please honor yourself and what it is that you have come here to do. Pay deep respect to your own personal vows and intentions. For the sake of yourself and for the sake of, of all of us. <laughs> 